This is Katie B, and you are about to listen to an early episode of my podcast. Now the show is called The Move Your DNA Podcast, and you can find all episode transcripts and the show notes to this episode at nutritiousmovement.com slash podcast. Enjoy. Podcast, where movement geek Danny Hemmett, that's me, joins biomechanist Katie Bowman, that's her, author of Move Your DNA, for discussions on body mechanics, movement nutrition, natural movement, and how movement can be the solution to modern ailments we all experience. What's up? So much is up. We have to talk about something before we get going. Something big. So much is up. It's something. I know. Um, you want to talk about it? I want you to. Talk I want you to. Me. Well, the thing. Well, the thing is, is I. How did? How did you? How were you notified that we were nominated for the International Podcasts Day, which was September thirtieth? Their Gratitude Award. So, how did that even come about? Because I didn't even know. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just looking around at some cool, uh, you know, trying to improve my podcastiness and came across this thing and you actually had to nominate your own podcast. You couldn't, somebody else couldn't nominate you. You had to apply to be a part of their group. And then uh, what happened is this was an award for this wonderful organization called My Podcast Reviews, which like gathers all reviews about a person's podcast. And the only way that you could win it was by reviews from your listeners about how your podcast had changed their life. For the better, hopefully. I think it was a <laughs> it was a gratitude award. Um, I'm homeless and now, so, and I appreciate it. Yes, thanks a lot, Katie. Thanks a lot, minimalism. Um, way to go! I miss my couch. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So our our listeners. Oh my goodness! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! And what happened? Best. You didn't even know okay. what happened. What happened is when they were going to do it, they were going to announce it was International Podcast Day, which was September 30th. Last week, I guess, I was sitting at home waiting for the live announcement, and then I realized I had to go get something for those darn kids that live in my house. And you let, there's you have children living in your house? Can you believe it? And they need things like clothes. Attention. <laughs> Attention, <laughs> food. I'm at Costco getting rain gear for nature school and got a little notification from Twitter that we won. And I'm trying to call you, and I don't know, would you, like, bury your phone or something? Well, you know, I do not... Where were you? I don't keep my phone on me, because if I did, I would never, ever have a work break. So, I mean, okay, keep in mind, this was, like, at 4.30. I had had a bunch of people over for dinner, because we do that a lot, right? Listen to the community episode. So, at the moment that you were texting me was in the middle of a footloose dance party with four adults and like 10 kids and we were doing this crazy dancing and I just kept hearing this like bing bing and then I pick it up it's like Danny 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 where are you what are you doing we won there was go to that Twitter was a frantic and then I went to Twitter <laughs> and there were 40 notifications congratulations they just announced it oh my gosh and I was kind of like what do I do oh my god what do I do Danny do I go online do I because they were they wanted us to be on the show because it was it was for podcasting. It was live. It was live, and it was really interesting. It was a new technology called Blab. Mm -hmm. So Blab is actually okay. So I'm so far behind, right? It took me forever to get a podcast, and I just got Instagram, and now everyone's like, "Do Periscope." So evidently, <laughs> we're back to we were at video, we were at blogs, and then we we're at podcasts, and now we're on video constantly. Just just move in with me, everybody. That's going right. to be the next thing. Is everyone just gets to move into your house, but. Blab is this really cool, what is it? like? A ch it's like a chat group, video, live. It's kind of like Google Hangouts, only it's it's like Periscope, which I just found out about, where people can are commenting and chatting with each other. And it's it was just so fast and streamlined. So they had been on Blab all day and announced yeah. on Blab. And so I had to figure out how to log into Blab. And then oh, you there was awesome, a video. You were awesome, though, that you got on. Yeah, except that I didn't know it was video. I thought it was I was calling into a radio. And so I kid you not, I was like the grungiest. Here it's like here, you know. Well, you just I, gotten off of a footloose dance party. I had. So I was what a should sweaty, we expect? 
I was. I was covered in glitter and wearing my prom clothes from 1981. But anyway. Awesome. Yeah, it was great. So for all of you out there who left a review, oh my goodness, I don't even know how to express my gratitude other than to say it is my total pleasure to do this podcast for you. The end. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. I know it's not easy to to get in and leave those reviews. And for those of you that took the time that did, you helped us win. And, and yeah. we won the first one ever. Like it yeah. was the first time they've ever given this award. Yeah. And it wasn't based on size or, or popularity, right? Because there are huge blogs who have tremendous numbers of reviews and, li- you know, listeners like in the, the millions. Yeah. And that is yeah. not us. But at the same time... We have a great community of people. So I love I love more that we speak to a small group of people who are really in it to win it. Like they're committed <laughs> to this big picture. You know, they're not just listening to it for entertainment. Like, thank goodness. <laughs> but well. but are for but for tips. And they're like, okay, I'm ready for the next step to transition my life. And wow, I'm just like humbled. Yeah. It was awesome. All right. What are we talking about today? Today, let's roll forward. Today's episode is on cycling on bikes. Maybe unicycles, tricycles. Uh, okay. Tricycles? <laughs> tricycles. What do you call it? A tricycle? A tricycle, you know, like a popsicle. So is it like a, three. it's not a pop cycle? You don't need I, I don't know. See, now. I don't know where words. I am. I don't know. I'm just stuck here. You're in at home with all those children yeah. who live in your house. Yeah. <laughs> let's just talk about bicycles. Okay. But let's talk about bikes. All this does apply to to anything with wheels, essentially. But sure. yeah, let's talk about bikes. Sure, yeah. And how it all is tied in with nutritious movement and junk food movement. Bikes are popular. They're huge. Cycling is hugely popular. And um, we did a show on natural movement a while back. And I think over the last few years, I've written at least a couple of posts on this idea of junk food movement. So the ones off the top of my head I know are um, the podcast names. If you want to go, we can link to them in the show notes. Sure. Junk junk food walking and side effects. And again, these are blog posts that are, I mean, at least two years old. I have a new one coming out because, again, as, as I'm refining this idea of movement nutrition, I think I have better language now to talk about this idea of junk food movement but every time I use junk food to describe an exercise, well, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say protest as much as clarifying questions. There's certainly protest, but not with anyone who's been listening for a while. I think it's about clarifying questions like, okay, wait, wait, what's junk food? And yeah, I mean, there's some blowback just yeah. because you don't want to, you know, you're exercising. So you think I'm doing this great thing. And then R- sure. no one thinks junk food sounds good. So when you hear it right. together, you're like, what, what? Even though, I mean, who doesn't love junk food, right? So it's like... I think I, I like pop cycles. Pops, you know, pop cycles. That's, that's, that's my so favorite junk. Food. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So where do we start? What's the first? Okay. Well, let's just kind of define a quick description of junk food movement for those of you that haven't read Move Your DNA or the posts that you just mentioned. Could you just kind of give us a rundown? quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that in the beginning of Don't Just Sit There, I wrote this whole long section on if you could only eat out of a movie theater, you know, that might help tie it into it. So if you have that book, go read that section again. So junk food, I mean, junk implies negative. But what I'm asking you to do with this idea of junk food is keep the positive benefit. Junk food is something that you eat that provides a short-term satisfaction, whether it's physiological or psychological, at the expense of long-term health. So like if you are starving, if you have nothing else, junk food could be highly valuable because in the in the end, having some calories is better than having no calories. So if you can keep that in mind, especially those of you who love your bicycle, I don't mean junk food in in the negative connotation. I'm simply looking for a vernacular or a term that we get to go, okay, I get that this junk food thing that I'm eating has got some trade-offs of the good and the bad. All right, that's fine. So junk food movement or junk movement in that same way is a way of moving that will provide some sort of short-term, again, 
physiological or psychological benefit, some sort of fitness benefit, but there is an expense to the long-term health. So there's a tax, a biological tax that comes with it, or it might make some of you better, but not all of you better. So there are foods that can provide some nutrients, but not all of the nutrients, right? They make some of you better, but not all of you better. And then just to refine this a little bit more for this discussion, Right now, it seems like there's two categories, right? Nutritious right. movement and junk food movement. But there are foods that we wouldn't call junk food, but we're still aware of their mm, their level of being processed and would recognize that we couldn't sustain ourselves entirely on them. So, like, I'm thinking of something. So, like, there's the junk food candy bar. And sorry, Snickers. You know I love you, but I'm always going to call. I'm always going to make you my junk food example. But then we could find probably a, a high quality or a higher quality convenience bar that had a lot more nutrition to it. Maybe it had it's like protein powder was in there or whatever, but it still wouldn't be it wouldn't satisfy all of your physiological requirements as a nutritious diet would. All right. So keep in mind there are foods and then there are diets and those are two different things so you can have a junk food snickers but you couldn't subsist solely on snickers um and then there's the way that a snickers would interact with good foods surrounding the snickers or snickers and then that's all you're eating so when we're talking about junk movement there are like junk exercises and then there's like a junky movement diet overall, or perhaps a starvation diet where you're not eating anything else, right? right? So a lot of people who exercise only exercise and then they're sedentary the rest of the time. So what they do for that small amount of time, you want it to be as nutritious as possible because if you're picking for your only exercise, something that is junk food movement where the biological tax is there as well as some benefit, but there's also a tax, then you're going to have some sort of health outcomes in the same way that you would if you didn't eat enough nutrients, either because you're not eating that much and then you're only eating junk food or you're trying to subsist solely on like supplements and vitamins. Like if, if a protein shake, I'm trying to think of like a slim fast, right? Like wasn't that a diet when I remember my mom being on something where it was three shakes a day and a nutritious dinner? Mm-hmm. That was a thing, right? That still is still a thing, is maybe. A thing. It still is a thing. Yep. So keep all that in mind. So I'm going to refer back to okay. that. Um, okay, go. Well, now let's move into that direction of like, I love that biological tax term or the expenses of cycling. What are some of the, the costs associated with cycling? Ooh, okay. Well, I'm going to call on a little bit of previous knowledge so either from reading Move Your DNA or at least listening to the Loads podcast, which was early on mm -hmm. before we were award winning. <laughs> <laughs> I threw it in there. What a joke. Way back then, yeah. <clears throat> this is like going back to that movement as mechanical nutrients or there are some inputs. So with cycling, the easiest way to think about it would be that the loads in this case, I mean, every single exercise is going to have a different what's junky about it and sometimes what's junky about it is what it has and sometimes what's junky about it is what it's missing so like if we go back to the snickers we could be like well there's trans fats and you know who knows dyes or whatever else are in there that's junk i don't i'm not a, a biochemist so i don't know all the crap that's in there but if we can say that there's some negative things too much sugar or whatever but then there's also, of a Snickers diet, what it's missing. It's missing enough vitamin C. It's missing amounts of protein. It's missing, okay, so there's there's two, what it has that's bad for you that your body has to cope with and also what it's missing, what it doesn't have. So with cycling, what it has is excessive amounts of pressure on your fun bits, right? <laughs> so your, your junk... I don't want to use junk because it might be as junk as my my term for <laughs> for what I don't even know. I'm like so embarrassed right now, <laughs> and I'm not an embarrassed person, but I, I I should just do this podcast talking the way that I normally do. But yes, everything like your dangly fun bits between your legs, right? You've got pressure. You've got pressure on your tailbone, on your coccyx. You've got pressure on your pelvic floor. All of your stuff has tubes through it. 
So when you add pressure to tubes, you change the flow within those tubes. You know, if, if anyone has dealt with, you know, I think cyclists care about friction, right? I believe there's oh, a yeah. question about this later. You know, you're thinking of like minimizing skin, like, oh, I don't want the chafing, but it's like, yes, but there's cellular chafing as well that mm-hmm. doesn't have that immediate feel. So like all of that's going on. And then there are compensations, like maybe you clench your butt slightly all the time. You you tuck your tailbone so that you don't have your pressure on any particular bits. Maybe you get a seat with a cutout in it. But now when it's like if you sit on a donut, the stuff inside the ring is under higher pressure and there's short-term comfort. And then there's things like long-term adaptation. So that all happens within a moment. And the issue is more the adaptation to that. So cycling for five minutes is different than cycling everywhere for five years, right? So there are cellular changes to, I mean, people get thickening to the skin, they get butt calluses, right? Like you Mm -hmm. get, you get textural changes, postural changes, flow changes. And then there are also the ailments that rise up when things aren't there. So with cycling, what's most research is bone density because cycling is not a weight-bearing activity. Bones develop based on on how much weight they are bearing. So when you have something like swimming or something like cycling, what the research is starting to really hone in on are how does that change total bone density although more recently, local bone density, because your total bone density is not really as big of a deal as your local bone density. Like I could take a test and I get a number, a total number of how I stack up relative to other people. But if my femur is is what is at risk for fracturing, and if my chance of dying is very high within one year after fracturing my hip, I'm going to be most concerned with, well, what is my femoral bone density? I encourage people to go out and always read the literature for themselves, the research for themselves. When you're reading, you want to be looking at, is this measuring total bone density or is it measuring site-specific bone density? Because you are going to see as you're cycling, because you're doing any exercise, an increase in total bone densities often. But when they start comparing like, well, what about the femoral neck or the, the you know, if you think of the thigh bone, that the bone that goes off to your hip socket, then it kind of thins like that space as the density goes down, it's very susceptible for fracture. So maybe my total bone density can go up, but my density within my hips can go down. So you just want to make sure that when you're reading, be aware of what was is being measured. So like, there's a lot of literature on this. So I'm just going to throw out some titles. Can I throw out some titles? Please do. Just if someone's like, I want to go read more right now. Here we go. Bone Related Health Status in Adolescent Cyclists. That's one article. Low Bone Mineral Density in Highly... I I missed a word there. I think it's like highly trained male master cyclists. I don't know. I forgot a word. Bone loss over one year of training and competition in female cyclists. Bone mineral density of female athletes in different sports. Evaluation of the bone status in high-level cyclists. So this is not new. It's certainly become more vigorously. As mechanotransduction and as forces are coming back into biology and movement, People are starting to look at mechanisms for these diseases. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not only cycling. That's just kind of what we're talking about today. You can have, you can look at lots of different sports and see how they compare. There's some great um, articles comparing lots of different sports um, to see how they compare to each other in terms of bone density. Are these articles that an uh, everyday Jane can have access to? See, that's they, the thing. Are they, not, your, are they your smart person articles? These are research articles. Okay. So you're going to find All them right. in Google Scholar or PubMed. Right. I won't promise them for the notes. No. Well, we can at least link to them. Okay. We can link to the article and then anyone can choose to pay the 30 bucks to read it, you know, or whatever. And sometimes you can find copies of it for free online if they have open access and stuff. But yes, that is the rub. Okay. The rub is... You want to learn, but you're being charged for it. I mean, I guess, you're, I mean, you're looking at someone else's work and whatnot. I think everyone should podcast everything free all the time. The world would be so great. <laughs> anyway, okay. So. Okay. Well, let's talk about one thing. Well, there's so much, of course, I love about your work and your teaching, but variables. You've introduced my entire thought process to there's variables for everything. Mm-hmm. And cycling has its own variables right so all these things that we're talking about they're not just from one kind of bike there's different kinds of biking there's different bikes there's different you know amounts different terrains all the way i mean what are some of the things that some of the differences that 
that we can look at because somebody might be listening to this going, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Well, anything that affects the load. So again, I'll refer you back to moving your DNA. And I actually use cycling in the book to go, okay, so let's look at cycling. Okay. You could be extremely fit cycling. You can hit all of your fitness, like your heart rate, your anything associated with fitness, your VO2 max, you know, your resting heart rate, all the minutes of endurance training, like there's all those types of variables. Mm -hmm. But then again, when you look at health variables like bone density, fracture risk, risk of osteoporosis and stuff, those are usually not associated with fitness. So you can have really high fitness competitive metals and you can still choosing your tests not do very well when it comes to how well am I going to walk, you know, after 60 years old? What's my risk of falling down? What's my risk of, you know, needing to be in a home or whatever? Yeah. So that's like, that's always my perspective. My perspective is not that you love it, that it makes you fit, that it makes you hot. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm a biological girl. So I'm talking about biological variables. So when it comes to cycling variables, again, cycling is a category that includes like, are you riding a road bike or a mountain bike? Are you riding that mountain bike on a road? <laughs> you know, like what's, right. there's a type of bike and then the are type of riding. Are you up on your riding. feet? Are you down on the seat? How, exactly. Hills, not hills. How much are you standing? How, yeah, how yeah, bumpy yeah. is it? I just, I was like, no. That was, that was a good sound Did it come effects. through? Thank you. Yeah. That's way Thank better you. than your rapping. Awesome. Right. What do you mean? Wait, was that what? a bad kind of compliment? What? No. <laughs> No, your sound effects are good. Let's just stop there and go for it. I'm not a ramper. I'm a bumper. <laughs> All right. All about the texture. So, and then there's, then there is, again, cycling is just a food. What is your diet like around that? So you have to, again, with research, you know, we have a lot of people trying to use research. You have to remember that re, that science is about looking at all of the data collected about all of it all together at the same time. So, you know, you don't want to pull out one article and wave around and go, see, see, see. You have mm-hmm. to look, look at all of it. So- you know, a lot of times as people are losing bone loss who are cyclists, they're only cycling. It's their only form of movement. And so, again, so much of this, you're, you're, uh, you are how you move, right? So not, you're, not, you're not how you cycle as much as you are how you move. So how you move during your cycling hours is certainly important. But what about all of the rest of it? Like every time that you could walk to the store, you just grab your bike because it's faster. You know, you might want to swap out some of that time for something else, which we'll get to in a second. A posture on the bike, right? There's a lot of... Did you ever watch The Triplets of Belleville? I love that movie. Yeah, it's in my side effects. It's in one of my blog posts. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it is. You're right. You're right. Okay. Like it is the extreme cyclist to me, but that's one type of cyclist, Right. right? That is like your hardcore elite master cyclist who just cycles to bed. It's like, I don't even walk. I don't like, I just cycle over here and my quads are the size of a mountain. You know, like that's your, like a stereotype. But, but I know a lot of people who are like that and they have, you know, they've got burlordosis of the neck. You know, they, they basically look like they're on the bike even when they're off of the bike. I live in a senior community and in the Pacific Northwest. So there's a lot of cyclists. Cycling is probably the number one sport up here. And I live on a trail that goes 120 miles. So I see cyclists all of the time. So my data collection for cyclists visually and and seeing their resting alignment because they all get off, right? Kind of where we are because we live right at this spot, like a rest spot, a meetup spot. And I kid you not, I'll see a couple people a day who when they get off of their bike, walk in a way that looks like they're still pedaling. They're just like mm-hmm. lifting their legs up off the ground. It's in, it's in front of them and they're just, you know, they're in their clip-ons. Oh my goodness. It's like, yeah. wow. It's like the transition phase of a triathlon. When you watch a triathlon, you'll see after someone comes off a long ride, their psoas muscles have adjusted and their first, you know, quarter mile of a run is trying to get that out of their system because they don't even have a full stride, right? They're just kind of like running like they're on their bike. So anyway, so imagine if that happens over a period of an hour, to what degree that is happening on a cellular level, like an adaptation when you do it primarily as your primary exercise all of the time, that uh, adaptation is just deep and it doesn't come out to the extent that you think it does just because you're done being on a bike. So I guess those would be variables. Okay, cool. Well, let's cycle back to the bone density issue. <laughs> come on, come wah, on. Wah, 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 wah. How about kids? Got a lot of questions yeah. about kids. Do sure. You, do your kids ride bikes? So, yes. Oh, they're kind of little, aren't they still? Yeah, but my son was riding a two-wheeler when he was two. Okay. Okay, so, yes. I mean, cycling, 
cycling is like a fun thing to do. It certainly is a movement skill. It's part of childhood. It's part of Americana. It's part of, I mean, I shouldn't even say Americana, right? Because we go to the, we go, we go to the Holland. We go to the Holland quite a bit. We go to the Netherlands often where cycling is a way of life. Yeah, um, I mean, so, so many countries, it's just, yes. that's the transportation. Everyone in France just went, <gasps> wait, Holland, no, they stole the bicycle from us. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so I am not, I am not anti-bicycle, right? In the same way, like, my kids eat ice cream, my kids eat, they, they, they watch TV, or they watch videos, you know, like, there are things that are clearly not perfectly nutritious but this is the real world and and this is society and so like i'm not i'm not a freak in that way we just we dial it back so that what's good about it can be preserved right so Mm -hmm. like there's family movie night and then there's watching two hours of tv every single day and where family movie night doesn't even have a value anymore right and so anyway so the way that i look at cycling for my children and my son was into bicycles and motorcycles from the time that he was maybe six or seven months old. Boom-booms and mamas. Like, so those were motorcycles and bikes. And he wanted one. And he got his first bicycle when he was one, one a Strider bike, which I'll talk about later because there's a couple parent questions. And so he was on his Strider bike and he was riding a pedal bike fully, Without training wheels or, I mean, he never had a training wheel phase because he went from strider bike to pedal bike when he was two. So he was maybe two and four months. And my daughter's the same. Uh, She was a little bit later. She was three. So, yes. However, I wouldn't ever check off that they were cycling as they are getting their exercise, meaning that cycling is dessert. They cycle after they eat their dinner, which would be the equivalent to lots of walking for the day. Mm-hmm. So I know there are some people that's like, I'm so glad, you know, my kid gets exercise. He rides his bike all of the time. It's like, I don't really count cycling as uh, towards any movement requirement. If it's a choice between TV and cycling, cer- certainly cycling has more movement. But again, when it comes to bone density, bone density is almost more important than, ch- I mean, it is more important in children in that your peak bone mass is established while you are a juvenile. So your bone density will never become any higher than it is, you know, around the age of 17. So it's like, you know, we say you can't really bank exercise and bone is one of those ways in which you are actually establishing the breadth or the amount of your bank account. And so if you are a undermoved child, you will become a very frail adult. And you can't really ever eke that. You can't eke it as much as you can when you are a child. So like you're setting you're setting the quantity. So that's why it's like, you know, once once they're older, I mean, whatever they do, whatever they want to do when they're older, they're going to do. But for me, what I can do as a parent is going, yeah, we like let's like let's ride bikes. But also I explain, you know, it's like it's like dessert. Did you walk today? Did you do any walking yet? Maybe we should go walk for like an hour or we'll cycle to where we're going to walk. Anyway, those are like tips for later. Okay. And you said you had a, a research article that you were talking about that talked about juvenile. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, I, I listed it at the beginning. So okay. bone-related health status in adolescent cyclists, what they're noticing are in a lot of these populations, like the movement that kids get the most is actually cycling. So that's why saying that a kid gets exercise, it's like, but they still have really low peak bat peak bone mass because the exercise that many kids get are swimming and cycling, both non-bone builders. So as a parent, right, you're like struggling to get your kids to move. I totally get it. And you're like, so they're in swim lessons and they love swimming, they'll just swim and swim and swim and they love bikes and I can go for a run or go for a walk and they can keep up with me. And we do that because, because that's good, right? Like them being fit, we've made fitness the variable and not bone mass building. So that's where I'm like, Hey, and not just me. So these researchers are like, hey, these kids have bone density problem. Osteoporosis is increasing. Why? It's like, okay, well, a lot of people for their primary movement are doing non-bone building things. So you end up as a very fit adult with the same risk hip and risk fractures as those who did no exercise because to your hips, you are sedentary. Right. And To and your I, knees, you're a sedentary. 
And I think that whole, that fitness thing that really ties in with our obsession with cardio, it does. you know, how we think like cardio, 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 it's the best thing, you know, to do. And, and that's, I mean, and just let me say, I think biking is awesome. And I know you think this too. It's awesome for the environment and you're outside and it's affordable transportation. I live in yeah. a town that is constantly in the top three of the best biking cities in the United States. There's like 300 miles of biking trails just in our little town and 300 days of sunshine a year. So it's like there everybody bikes in Boulder. That's just it's a biking town. And so Is I that see their that, motto. Yeah, I actually. Yeah, I'm going to submit that. I hope I win. I'm on a winning streak. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit that to the city council. I'm going to go see the mayor tomorrow. Everybody bikes. Are you going to bike over? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, I just want to say that, you know, biking is, it is good. But I think that whole the cardio thing, it's probably pretty hard for some people to process when they're thinking, well, my kid's out there biking all the time, or I'm biking all the time, so I am fit. Yeah. This is good stuff for us to talk well, about. It's, you know, this is, this is the, scientific, the scientific process is reducing things down to variables. And in the movement community and exercise physiology and in, in movement science as a whole, the, varial, the variable that we've stopped at are they're, they're chemical. They're, it's a biochemistry set of variables. They're non-mechanical. So they're not looking at the structural influences. They're looking at things like, uh, you know, like VO2 magnet, things that are easily measured. So, so it's like intensity. Intensity is so easy to measure. And we like to give tools, you know, easy tools for people to measure. And it's a lot harder for someone to measure their weight-bearing status. But you can see when you're working hard, you can feel it. You can see it drip off your forehead. There went hard work. So again, it just has to do with a reduction that's not very specific. And again, it's changing in academia. It's just not trickling down to Shape Magazine, right? Where like it's well, yeah, it's too cultural. I, I saw an IMAX thing on NASA and the space station, and it was really cool. And they talk about how, you know, the the lower, how when you're in space, you start to lose bone density. Mm-hmm. And their way of counteracting this was they said, we need to have the astronauts exercise. And so they had them on a reclining, you know, recumbent stationary bike. And and I just remember thinking, well, how is that, you know, does, is that giving them, giving them cardio, but what's it really doing? Would it be doing anything? I mean, I'm clearly no rocket scientist. It's not doing it. It's not working. But now this is the first time they're actually they're actually studying the cellular effects of gravity right now. This is the first time it's ever happened in NASA because it was only a couple of years ago before they recognized that cells felt gravity. What? <laughs> um, so it's just now starting. So this is all going to be we are going to be so outdated in like 25 years from now. But yes, I, this is the problem. You have ideas that are perpetuated because everyone's trained in exactly the same way. You know, mm-hmm. so all these new discoveries this year, you know, the brain has a lymphatic system, cells feel gravity, da, da, da. They're from like really amazing, qualified, educated PhDs in their field who are like, oh, we just happen to do something a little bit different this time. Like because the train, the techniques that you are trained in and how to dissect something to look at it are all exactly the same. And it turned out because this guy did a different cut of the brain, he was able to see a tube that the method for dissecting a brain, which everyone is trained in in college, just did it the same exact way. And no one ever saw this tube because the angle at which they always cut it broke the tube. Mm. And it was only because of a fluke of someone cutting it slightly different, someone going out of the box and doing something non-mainstream that they are able to make a discovery. This is how it goes. That's fine. Everyone at NASA, you know, they're still, they too are looking at intensity and cardio because that is how it is taught at the academic level in exercise physiology but then you have someone who is trained not in exercise you want you want an exercise physiologist to be doing your exercise physiology experiments but then you have a biophysicist who's like oh hold up did you guys add like this force there and the exercise physiologist who's not a physicist is like yeah we don't do forces and then this guy's like well maybe or this lady is like maybe add this in and then all of a sudden it's like oh yeah because we have force-free models so it's just Mm -hmm. this is just the state of the scientific community right now is it's not very multidisciplinarian but it is starting to assemble so anyway all that to say that recumbent cycling in space is not 
maintaining their bones any better than re- recumbent cycling down here on the planet. Like it's they're both a really good way to see a decreased lumbar spine and femoral bone density. Mm-hmm. So what else? Hey, speaking about things that hang around in space, can we talk about man junk and some more a little bit? Like about seats. Would it actually <laughs> hang in space or would it just float it, around? I think it depends. On, <laughs> I think it depends on the mood and the person. But OMG, um, that uh, is the best visual right now of man junk in space. <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about seats and man junk because you said we'd yeah. talk a little bit about pressure. Gosh, where I thought I talked about that in this show, but I was actually on Dr. Perry's Stop Chasing Pain show. Oh. And um, when we were in Amsterdam, you know, all the res went you over. You mean the Holland? When we were in the Holland, we went to the Amsterdam Body Worlds exhibit. So like all these, oh. imagine all of these res teachers, right? So my entire staff of people, because we did a certification week there, we hung out on our last day and we went into the Holland and we went into the body world you're so where lucky. i know and i talked i've seen it before oh um but this i hadn't seen it in years and i had i didn't have like i had all my anatomy geeks with me and it was it was a it was cool but there was a so for those of you who don't know it's plasticized body parts um so like you'll have a human it's a it's a human who donated their body to science and what hopefully and it's supposed to be and it's a thing it's a thing that maybe it's not but anyway it's body rolls okay i'm getting on the sidebar anyway there was Go back to man junk man i know where did i get off base here I, I don't know. this model this person has been stripped down so you see its bones its muscles and you can see his you don't actually see do they leave something on the penis you can see the testicles and all the tubing right and so they put these bodies in real life situations. So I don't know. It was like four people stripped down to their tubes and muscles and ligaments and stuff playing cards. So they're sitting in chairs. And the only way that this body could sit in a chair, this male body, without smashing his junk between the chair is by tucking his pelvis. Wow. So it just made me think, holy crap, you know, like men have this, like I, we have tighter hamstrings, da, 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 da. It's like, but if, if you have, you know, men and women who've been sitting in chairs equally, where the natural tendency is to, the man, the natural tendency is going to be always to take the pressure off the junk, right? So you're going to tuck your pelvis so that the pressure doesn't trap your junk in between your body weight and the seat that you're sitting on. It's like, it's why squatting as a resting position makes so much more sense because you are not putting pressure on all of your goodies. And so anyway, just seeing it right there, I'm like, oh, there's no other possible way to sit than to have a tucked pelvis if you are sitting in a chair, because if not, you're just going to smash the crap out of all your good stuff. And I don't think that your body would even allow you to do that. It's kind of like (laughs) my kids rarely have clothes on and uh, my son was sliding down the front. You know, he climbs up in the car. He tries all these different challenges to climb up to the car, and he slides down the front. And he was doing it to someone else's car. And all I could see with his cute little dingle dangle stuff getting caught in the grill as he was going down. Like, I just kept imagining that. And I was, like, telling my husband as we are standing there watching, like, all I can see is, like, his penis and his balls, like, just going into that grill and him, slip, like, sliding down and oh, ripping them off. And he's like, that would never happen. He's like, your reflexes around this area are so fast, like, at the least sensation of feeling anything, you just, like, you would just back away and move around, that you're so adept that that humans would not be around very long if they ripped their penises off, you know? Like, the human species would be done for if it was that easy to maim yourself going up and down trees and sliding around without clothes on. I suppose, I suppose. Yeah, so I... Are so tucking, like- I think, I think, t- let me just finish this, I think that tucking is just a real natural reflex to protect your junk. Okay, that was my question. Yeah. See, I answered it. So let's see, let's see if I can keep answering your questions before you ask them. Blue. What is the color of the sky? Oh my gosh. Oh my You're God. crazy, man. <sighs> and those seats that have the cutouts, that's not really a solution. It's just a different variable. Or well, I mean, I mean it is a solution, right? It allows you to not have to really tuck your pelvis, but at the same time, it just changes the location of the pressure, right? You're not you're actually increasing the pressure to that area 
by doing that. Like, so it's like, it's a physics thing. So you can sit on a chair. Let's say that you are untucked and now your weight is smashing, smashing your balls and your penis, right? Between your body weight and the seat. So you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get a cut out here. So you cut the hole out. Now everything can, can drop down into that area. But now the pressure is a ring around those things. So you're just transferring that load to the ring around those things. You're still pushing on the tubes and the hoses and affecting the flow to those areas and whatnot. So it's more comfortable, but you all you've done is change the location of the pressure, which would be different if you had no pressure there at all. A little ring around the hosey, hmm? Oh, come on. Um, okay. Did you have that in your back pocket? Or did I you know, just, like, it didn't. It just popped out. Woo. Genius. Pure genius. Um, it just popped out. I, I don't keep things like that in my back pocket. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm not going to make us degenerate here. What are some ways that we could supplement a cycling heavy movement diet? Because people that love to cycle, they just they love it. You know that. I do. Do you see? I it? just I just want to say, I I totally get that you love your bike, everyone out there, and all I would ask. For you, those of you who are out there loving your bike, is realize that everyone loves their something. I love the things that I love. Like, so I think that people get frustrated with other people for not doing things the way that they want to do it. And it always boils down to you just love the things that you do, the end. So mm-hmm. if you're feeling frustrated about why someone else won't just stop smoking or why someone else just won't, because we love the things that we love. And then there's also something a little bit more... I think there's something deeper to it is we've adapted to the things that we do. So taking them away, like they are, they're, they're supporting our current version of our body. So you have to be transitioning to something and have lots of steps along the transition. So anyway, let's say that, let's say that you love the act of cycling. I thought the best way that I could answer how to make cycling more nutritious was by grabbing a bunch of questions off of Facebook, because I realized that everyone was, was asking like a different version of mm-hmm. of the question. So I thought, well, instead of me trying to figure out all the different ways, I'm just going to answer some questions. So the first one was, um, if walking to work is too far, 10 miles, but cycling isn't, is a bicycle a better option than a car? So all the, the answers to everything is it depends. It depends on like from what angle. Cycling is much better for the planet then, you know, it doesn't take fuel. You are moving. There are all these benefits to movement that you can get. So in that way, I would say yes. Although, who is asking this question? If someone is dealing with a psoas tendonitis or low bone density in the hips, and then getting to work would only take six minutes of sitting versus an hour, like you have to look at all of the variables. So I really can't answer any of these questions, but I think I can at least flesh out some thinking. Okay. You talked earlier about walking being this like amazing transportation. It's like a free transportation. It gets you outside. It doesn't take fossil fuel. Walking does all those same things. I'm just saying like, yeah, you know what I mean? It's the only problem with walking is its slowness. Right. I mean, uh, which I'll talk about in a second. And it doesn't require cool gear. And it, you know, it's like cyclists, the cyclists that I know, like that's part of their identity, right? So like, you're like, but I have friends who we do this all together. It's like your whole community. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to assume that that a lot of people asking are asking from that perspective of going like, you don't understand. I am my bike. Now, how do I make it more nutritious? So yeah. how does sitting on a bike affect pelvic floor health? Most people are concerned with chafing. You can buy pants and lotions for this, but not so concerned with the constant pressure on the pelvic floor. I just saw this for the first time at a male pelvic health presentation about cycling. I haven't seen any papers like on cycling and pelvic floor disorder, but when you read the bodies of like the body of words, if you read the text of articles, you'll see it listed as a risk factor quite often so that there's something happening. What is the exact mechanism? Is it the pressure, the frequency, the lack of them doing other things, right? Because there's no hip extension, meaning from like going beyond neutral there, you're missing a whole nutrient like butt muscle. Yes, you're still using your glutes, but not in the same way that you would be doing something um, more natural, I would say, like, like walking, 
overground walking, which then it goes on to affect the pelvic floor. So the parts of your body are not only the parts that you can list from an anatomy book, but also the way that they are used, the forces that they are creating. So with something like cycling, which is an unnatural movement, it's an unnatural way of using the body and an unnatural frequency or or repetitiveness, then you end up malnourished in certain mechanical nutrients and you know, loaded hip extension would be one of them. And that's part of, you know, the pelvic floor's maintenance nutrients, you know, if you will. So that's all I have to say about that. We can, we have more pelvic floor stuff later. Spinning is huge. And by spinning, I think she means like aerobic cycling classes. Like the spinning is a brand. Yeah. But there are other cycles. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just. Somebody yelling at you at the front of the class. Yeah. But I think that there are there are cycling classes, aerobics classes that are not called spinning. So this is just for like that stationary bike aerobics class. They're huge. The body parts that are moving a lot in spinning and road biking are the legs pumping like mad. Sometimes you stand up and pedal uphill and more parts are involved. But it's mostly legs with upper body and arms being still. Can you talk about the cardiovascular benefit of biking spinning classes? Are there better options? So. Is there a cardiovascular benefit? Sure. Um, But in Move Your DNA, again, the state of your cardiovascular system, a healthy cardiovascular system, have to do with what's happening on the micro level, the capillaries. We've reduced it for easy measure to take your resting heart rate and your maximal heart rate and your blood pressure. But none of those things speak to the actual function of the cardiovascular system, which is to deliver oxygen to all parts of your body. And the benefits of cardiovascular exercise are local to the parts that are working. So when you have large honks of your body that aren't moving, they are not benefiting from this reduced variable. You are creating areas with adaptations and then you have areas without. So if the adaptation, like the the measure is not the benefit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to break for here for a second just so I can... I'm just going to stop. I'm going to stop talking so I can continue talking over here. I'm going to go over here. Can you hear me? <laughs> there was a study about, do we talk about this? The grip, death from all mortality, or I think it was actually death from cardiovascular issues and grip strength. So they went around to a load of people and measured all of their grip strength on a hand dynamometer. You grab it, you squeeze it, shows the strength of your hand. And what they found are people who had a stronger grip strength had a decreased risk of dying from a cardiovascular issue. And so if you read the paper, it's like, oh, these people were were better movers. You know, they are people who did physical labor, who moved throughout the day, who were training in the gym, who, you know, who were exercisers. But the variable becomes grip strength. So now I read that article and I'm like, this is amazing. I'm going to improve my grip strength to be protective against a stroke. So I buy the hand dynamometer, right? I buy the test and I just sit and and practice to the test. And then I die like everyone else because I didn't actually do the behaviors that resulted in a better Mm -hmm. cardiovascular. I, I I didn't do the behaviors that gave me the protectiveness against cardiovascular diseases and also better hand strength. I just practiced the hand strength. So this is that same idea kind of with teaching, right? Like where we're teaching to the test. We're not really teaching broad subjects where the the breadth of learning and critical thinking is there. You're just trying to present basically the information that's going to be on the test so that you score well on the tests. And then you score well on the tests, but then it turns out that you don't actually know that much beyond what was on the test. You didn't necessarily learn how to think. So it's kind of that same it's that same idea with cardiovascular exercise. We're just, you know, we saw that people who did all sorts of the original cardiovascular health came from oh man, it's slipping my head. It's their trolley. Seat Oh yeah, the talk? conductors. Yes, the conductors. Seated conductors on a trolley versus, versus standing. the Versus the ticket takers, yeah. right? I think it was like there's two jobs on a trolley. There was the person sitting and the person taking the ticket. So they worked the same day. But they had more movement throughout the day. They did better on their cardiovascular test. So then everyone's like, oh, then I'm going to do the, I'm going to, I'm going to pass this cardiovascular test so hard, right? <laughs> so you, you train for the test, but it was what, that's only because someone 
some researcher like pulled out the, the cardiovascular and said this is a test, not the fact that they had moved all day throughout the day where the variable could very easily, the protective mechanism could very easily be the repetitive change in geometry or what we call movement, not the result of doing that. Okay. Because it's very easy, like I said, to fake a test. Like if someone moves all day and has a particular cardiovascular outcome and you hold up the cardiovascular outcome and someone says, well, I don't have time to do all day, but I learned how to basically biohack this or I can get my heart to perform on a test the same way that someone moved all day. And you're like, see, see, I have my protective mechanism. It's like, yeah, it turns out that even though the answers to the test was the same, the adaptations or the breadth of body knowledge that you have is different. And it was that body knowledge that resulted in the outcomes. Like also our J-shaped spine episode where it wasn't the spine. It was the movements that resulted in the spine. Mm -hmm. Everyone's trying to force their body into the the spinal shape. And it's like, no, it turns out it was the muscles being used in a way that resulted in the shape that was protective. So that's my end of speech on cardiovascular benefit. A lot of, just in the interest of time, a lot of people ask like, I do this. What can I do? You know, what's the the corrective or whatever? If you could create a perfect diet for a cyclist, not to put you on the spot or anything. But. No, but I think it's, you know, it's that same. <laughs> I just put this in the Diastasis Recti book. My brother, who's a smoker, swears that he is undoing his smoking by running. He balances his smoking habit with running. And that's a physiological validity to him. I'm like, yeah, that's not how it works. So keeping, you know, with that spirit in mind, if you are a cyclist, and I'm going to say cyclist with a capital C meaning, and I do no other types of movement, Mm -hmm. one, you have to start moving in other ways. Um, If you are cycling for exercise, or if you are cycling for transportation, then try to... Like, I have no problem with cycling for transportation. That's awesome. That's like just dead time that you're sitting down and around and it's great and it gets gets you outside more and it feels the wind, whatever. But maybe pick a different mode of exercise. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're like, no, I am a cyclist and, and I train as a cyclist, then walk for transportation. Or you're gonna have to increase your walking time in other ways. There was someone who had kind of an interesting question, which was, my partner wants to know why is cycling so awesome <laughs> and basically corrective exercise so boring. <laughs> and she and she was oh, like no. and she was like, well, it's but it is more efficient. You know, it's definitely more efficient. And so I was like, well, it depends on your definition of efficient. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of where this stack your life idea comes from. Things can be efficient in the short term, but not necessarily in the long term. So if you're like, hey, I'm going to use I can, I can get to work. Like, so someone says walking's too far, right? It's 10 miles. My office is 10 miles away. I can be there in, I'm not, how far can you, it takes you like what, 20 minutes max to cycle 10 miles. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. I feel like I used to ride my beach cruiser, maybe five miles, maybe, maybe like 40 minutes. Maybe, I don't know. Someone out there knows it's not me, but anyway, if you're going to go to work and not get like super sweaty where you're not racing, It's going to take you, I would say, under 30 minutes to ride 10 miles. But to walk 10 miles is going to take you two and a half hours. However, if you get to work and back in a fast amount of time and then go, well, I still need to get, you know, an hour and a half of walking in. I still have to do all of these phone calls. I still have to visit with this person or like there's all these to do lists where if you just walked the 10 miles you getting yourself to work would also get you two and a half hours of exercise. You would also be getting your walking nutrients. You could also be making phone calls during that entire time. You could be doing business. You could just be, um, I swear to God, I went walking the other day and took all those horrible phone calls that I make that have to do with changing my cell service, you know, like where you're mm-hmm. sitting on hold forever, like things that you put off because you just don't want to be on the phone. Well, I did them on a six mile walk. And guess what? Like they weren't like this crazy, horrible thing for me to do. I was outside. It was no problem for me being on hold because I knew when I was done, not only would I have walked, but I have taken care of those three 
tasks that I've been pushing off to the side for three and a half months. I call my grandma because I feel like I have to. And walking is a really great way to, you know, just touch base with her. She's always tickled. You can meet a friend to walk a portion of it, you know, so that you're getting this social time. So I just efficiency, if you are racing to get somewhere fast so that you can then leave more time to do the other things that you could have also done during that period of time that you're racing through to get done fast, that's not really efficient. Right. What's most efficient would be to do the walk and all of the other things that you needed to do on your task list at the same time. That's going to be most efficient. And then it would be actually better for your body. You would actually be doing many things. As far as the boredom factor, I think that that's psychological preference. You know, it's, I don't know, you go listen to Ben's podcast. Ben's not bored. No. Walk in 500 miles a month or whatever he's doing. You know, he's like, he's like learning about his community he's like in school he's educating himself like all these things are happening during his walking so boredom is a mindset right i don't think you could say that an activity is boring as much as you are bored by something what else oh can i do one more sure i think i'd like my children to know how to ride a bike as a form of public transportation where i live which is cool don't worry we also walk a lot they put I see children as old as two or three on bikes, but I remember getting mine around five. Does it matter how early they start or their developmental changes to wait for in a growing body? While also ensuring that they have many varied types of movement at the park, jungle gym, and lots of walking as well. So this is someone, I feel like this, like, I feel like you already know the answer to this. I was going to say the answer to their own question. But it's the same. I, I would highly recommend that everyone start their child on a Strider bike and ditch the training wheels altogether. One of the great benefits of cycling is the balance and the motor skill of it all. So we, like I started riding a bike around five. When did, when did you ride a bike? I think about five or six, yeah. Yeah, so that was, I remember, that's when they I They didn't have strider started. bikes way back then, though. No, or at least they didn't have them in, the, in America. And those are just, if you don't know, those are bikes yeah. without pedals. Yes. Just, they call them balance bikes or... Right. Yeah. So we got our bike, right? We got our shiny bike. Kind of big for us, but it had these big wheels on it. So the first skill that you learned was pedaling, right? Super right. easy. And then you had to then all of a sudden, one day when they're like, this is it, we're taking these off, you would have to learn balance, which is a much more challenging skill. So in one way, it makes sense. You do the easy stuff first, and then you start with the harder stuff second, kind of like we're going to teach you your letters first, and then we're going to teach you you know, words second. But it turns out that we actually start working on our letters and our sounds by talking. So you, by the time you start learning how to read, you've been talking for a long time. And so someone, I believe the first bike, the Strider bike, was made in Germany, where it's a frame with two wheels and no pedals. So your feet are on the ground. So the first skill you learn is balance, which is super easy when your feet reach the ground and when you're very close to the ground. You know, your center of mass is very low. And so they would, they get like, I've got all this great video of my son. Like he would just, you stride long legs. So your legs are straight. You're not sitting with flexed hips and flexed knees. Your Mm. legs are long and you're pushing um, one leg back, the other leg back. And then you get the bike going and then they would just lift their legs off to the side and they're balancing. And it's a, a much more natural progression. So they learn balance first and then pedaling, which is super easy skill, comes like in 15 minutes. Actually, I think my son learned how to pedal on someone's tricycle. He already could he could already balance a strider bike and he would bomb they bomb hills. They use their feet as brakes. Their skills are like their skills are super good. They I had a friend who her girls rode strider bikes and then a friend of theirs whose kid did not got on the strider bike and just like crashed because they didn't actually know how to control the bike with their body. They were used to brakes and and gadgets, which Strider bikes don't have. So anyway, if you have a Strider bike and then you learn to pedal, see, it's a, there's like there was no frustration. There were no falling. There was nothing. It was just, I can balance. I'm totally cool. I can go down hills. I can steer. I can do all this stuff. And then, okay, now I can pedal. No problem. So that would be my recommendation for the ease of cycling. And then it's convenient to have a kid who can cycle, right? Because you can get more walking in. And they can get more pedaling. But I would say try to resist that as much as possible. There's just a phase of being a parent where you're going to have to walk slow. 
and you are teaching them how to walk and the payoff of doing that as opposed to you walking and, and letting them ride their bike because it's like sugar, it's like sugary food. It's like goldfish, you know, and Cheerios. It's an easy thing to give your kid to buy you a little extra time, but it's so hard to get them to eat more nutritiously once they've been exposed to kind of quick, junkier food, right? Mm -hmm. It's true. It's like that was cycling and walking. Like let them get the habit of the good stuff and then treat the cycling like dessert and then enjoy it. Enjoy the heck out of it. Sure. No, that's good. And you see that a lot, you know, parents walking with the little kid biking so that they can sure. all go at the same pace. So they can all get exercise. Yeah, sure. Like it's totally, it's total. I totally get it. Yeah. But again, I'm a biology girl, so I'm just trying to explain how it works. It's not about my preference. It's not about what you love or what you don't love. This is just about peak bone mass and muscle use and body longevity and optimal biological functions, right? So that we're not struggling our body, bodies aren't struggling to do other basic functions. All right, yeah. I have one more question. One more question for you. Okay. What is your favorite junk food movement and why? Okay, it's probably hula hooping because I like to hula hoop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you can answer a question with the same part of the question. So you so hula hooping? Is that junk food? Is that junk food? It's eating cuz I like to eat. No, it's I don't I don't know if it is. I mean, I'm just thinking about like something that has kind of basically one set of movements to it. Um but it's really fun. Yeah. I don't know if I would put hula hooping in a junk food category. Okay. I mean, Typically, junk food by roller skate too, like at a rink. Yeah, yeah. So when you have a when you have motions that the body wouldn't really be able to do without some sort of equipment, like when you're looking at equipment, you're looking at something you know that's heavily processed. You know, it's like the it's like the equivalent to food that doesn't really occur in nature. You know, so mm -hmm. so hula hooping, like I can see a lot of like dance itself is really a natural. There's there's a lot of occurrence of of dance, and so I would say that the hula hooping motion could definitely be part of it. I mean, actual keeping a hula hoop up, you know, it's like eh. But I think in general, I don't think it's that junky. I think it might be facilitated by the hula hoop, but I wouldn't say that's super. Do you junk have food. one? <laughs> of course, I have one. My favorite junk food movement is running stairs, running stairs, or the step mill, like at the gym. My favorite piece of equipment is the step mill, which is, it's not a Stairmaster, it's stairs on a treadmill. So it's oh, just- I remember a, those. Those were huge, like, like big bulky things. Yes, they're tall, you know, they're tall and it's just an endless set of stairs. I love going uphill, which makes so much sense if you know me. Like I just, it's like, I only want to go uphill for, for 60 minutes. I want to go up. I love running stairs. I love running stadium stairs. Like that is my- favorite junk food movement totally and it's junky because stairs you know that flat right that um s that step distance that's set for you it's it's just not it's not a very balanced food right there's no downhill i guess and when i'm running stairs at least there's a downhill portion of it but on the step mill no it's full it's like full uphill flat you know you're wearing shoes all it's just not that nutritious but it's fun and i love it and I love the cardio challenge of it. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm right there right. with everyone. But, you know, my, you know, as a, as a scientist, what you're trying to do is present the details, not like the, uh, not trying to color it with, but I, I get it that you love it. So go ahead and do it. Like, that's not what you, that's not the role that you want of your healthcare team. That's not the role you want of your scientists. You do not want them filtering information based on how they think it's going to make you feel. That is a slippery slope. So I'll just tell how it is. It is. And and for people that are listening to this that are cyclists with a capital C, I think, you know, it might even just be, I know that when I'm told something I don't necessarily like, I don't listen very well, um, no matter how long. Um, wait, what? what <laughs> no matter how what long happened? the two ladies go on and on and on <laughs> and on, like we have today. But it's just... It's not that cycling is bad and that you need to stop it right now, but you just, if you're only doing the same thing over and over again, and you think you're doing the most possible healthy thing, you just only have to understand that you're just missing a spectrum of sure. of movement nutrients. You don't have to give yeah. it up because you, like you said, we love what we love. Yeah. You don't and have to life. give up what you love. You just got to understand what this thing you love is doing in the long term, period. 
Well, and health is a culture, right? right? Like, so not everyone is really interested in optimizing biological function. We have so much technology, you almost don't have to. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in like how things work or why the issues that you're having are occurring, this helps. This information helps. It but does. yeah, so micronutrients are corrective exercises. I forgot to say this. So if I was doing, if you're cycling and you're only cycling, start walking more. But also there are corrective exercises to start targeting parts of you that are unused by being on your bicycle. So that would be the next piece is just go to, you can go to restorative exercise and, and see, we don't have to talk about all those, but there are there are emotions that your body needs that it's not getting by consuming, you know, vitamin cycle all of the time. So check those out. So, yeah. And also don't forget to follow Nutritious Movement on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And just keep submitting your questions. We have stuff on the website where you can either record or write a question because we're working on ways to answer more of them more often. We have great questions out there. We just mm-hmm. uh, clearly we keep running out of time and <laughs> just I don't know what what is wrong with us. So we just talk a lot, but there's so much know. to talk about. And they should have never given us a podcast. I, I know. Maybe they're going to take away our license. But you don't need a license for podcasting. It's all right. And again, thank you, everyone, for the thoughtful and helpful reviews that you write because it helps us shape this podcast. You are how you review. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening and for every review that you left for the Gratitude Award. For more information, books, online classes, you can find me at katiesays.com. You can learn more about Danny Hemmett, Movement Warrior, and Bike Helmet Believer. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. At uh, Move Your Betty. Move Your Betty. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is such a that good is website awesome. She you. calls me, just so you guys know, she calls me Betty all the time. I know. So. You are and such a Betty. She just had a little slip up there. Anyway, you can find <laughs> Danny Hemmett at MoveYourBodyBetter.com. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. We hope you find the general information on biomechanics, movement, and alignment informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and shouldn't be used as such. 